0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this The Planeteers Podcast. It's HBW.
1: Okay,
0: mo'eni, and welcome from me, DC, to this, uh, the second episode of The Planeteers Podcast.
2: Sanbanani, hope you guys are all good and welcome from me Precious to our second podcast.
0: I am sat here in not the studio with Precious because we are here actually on a Monday and not a Friday as usual as I had a bit of a problem on Friday and and Precious here was uh, very gracious in in rearranging means we're all gonna have a little bit of of a hurry. I, I was sat Friday morning and about to get ready to go and record and I had this issue that I, I went to wake up my, my son for, for school and uh, he, he disappeared, he, he wasn't there <laughs> and, and I spent a whole morning uh, going around looking for him, the, his keys were missing, the front door was left open, he's not in his bed, I had this big panic and uh, and after a whole morning of looking for him, I, I found him asleep under a pile of clothes in the spare room. <laughs> so um, we've been unfortunately delayed, but hopefully that won't affect any of the fantastic content. And um, it also means that we lost our, our recording studio, studio. So we're outside, we're doing an alfresco version of the podcast. So what have we got for you in this week's alfresco
1: podcast?
2: So today for our news session we'll be talking about a last continent that was recently reconstructed by a scientist from the Netherlands.
0: And then following the news we're going to head into an interview with um, Dr Alex Linferner. I caught up with him in Pretoria. You all just met him, those, well, those doing the online course just met him last week and so we'll find out a little bit more about what he does.
2: After that we'll be going to our One Minute Science where we'll be learning how our oceans are actually useful in making our planet habitable.
0: And then on from One Minute Science, we are going to do this week's very exciting Science Theatre, which is going to be building on the story we heard in light and air. And from there, we're going to go on and ask your questions. We've got lots of interesting questions, so I'm very excited to look forward to that. Okay, so before we get to all of that, without further ado, let's go in to science news.
3: news,
2: news. So today for our science news, we're going to the south of Europe, where the scientists have recently reconstructed a hidden continent. Seriously? Wow. Yes. So this continent is called Great Adria. And apparently, it's hidden below the southern part of Europe, and those, a re, the group of researchers from the Netherlands have spent the past decade trying to reconstruct it. So, Great Edra is dated to be 240 million years old, and, imag- and it emerged after the break-up from the supercontinent Gondwana. Great Adria belonged to the African tectonic plate, and it slowly slid beneath the Eurasian tectonic plate. So not all of this was above water. So they actually um, assumed that it was a string of islands, and this break out and the sliding under the Eurasian tectonic plate is estimated to have occurred between 1 million to 120 million years. So yeah that's what the scientists have been doing and the the way they have tried to reconstruct this is they have looked at uh, fossils from different rocks in the in this continent and they have actually found that 30 other countries have similar rocks to this continent so and they've also used something called uh, this magnetic field and I think in the, uh, in the course, we do talk about it so they use um, Paleo-magnetic dating. Yes, 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 uh-huh. yes and apparently it they use this ancient bacteria that aligns itself based on mm-hmm. the magnetic field yeah. of the earth and so that's how they've, those are the two methods they've used to reconstruct and to date this continent.
0: So I just want to take a step back uh, and just be clear so there was this whole continent on a tectonic plate which then just has disappeared, mm-hmm. right? It's gone under. It's got burnt up. But they're able to actually find that information about it. Yes, that's fascinating.
2: True, and it's it's just amazing how we have all these physical evidence that we can use to reconstruct our world and to understand what our climate and the our our, our continents looked like in the past. And uh, So, they've also published this work and it's under the Gondwana research. So, if you guys are interested, you can go read up on it. So, later on in the course, we're going to learn about isotope dating, but paleomagnetic dating is not part of the course. Carl, can you explain how it works?
0: Yes, sure. So, paleomagnetic dating is another tool that um, paleo scientists have in addition to radiometric dating and it's often useful in rocks that don't have any isotopes that can be radiometric dated and as, um, as you said later in the course we will come and look at that uh, radiometric dating. In terms of paleometric dating it uses something that's quite fascinating and that's that the poles the magnetic poles of the earth appear to switch once every 10,000 years almost like clockwork so every 10,000 years north becomes south and south becomes north, which must be super confusing for anyone who's about. But obviously, there weren't any people about 10,000 years ago to be confused about it. Uh, but I think we're due for one within a few hundred years, so that actually could be a very confusing event. So every 10,000 years, like clockwork, we go from north goes to south and south goes to north and there's various things containing iron and these bacteria that align themselves with uh, the Earth's magnetic field so you can see the changes in them. Now radiometric dating gives you a pretty exact date whereas this obviously will only give you a date to the nearest ten thousand years because you can count the number of switches that have happened between the present and where your sample is found. Um, but it's a really interesting way about actually finding out exactly how long ago something was in the past.
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting because also with this continent they have reconstructed a map and they actually propose that it was the continent moved northward and then it twisted slightly before colliding with um, Europe. So it's quite interesting that we have tools to actually reconstruct and Trace back how things have changed, even with uh,
0: placements. All right, is that it for the news this week?
2: Yes, that's it for the news. Up next, we have an interview with Alex, who was on the second featured on the second week of the online course. Dr. Cole is going to find out about what he does, his activism, and what he's been up to since he attended his HPW workshop.
4: Uh,
0: this is me DC speaking from uh, the lovely grounds here at the university of Pretoria. I have been at the 29th habitable planet workshop, and I'm very lucky to be able to be sat here interviewing uh, a planeteer who's gone on to do quite great things. He's a climate activist. He's been just recently completed his doctorate in the States. It's, um, Dr Alex Lanferno, Alex, how are you? I'm doing very well thanks. It's a real pleasure to to be here with you and to be speaking to Planeteers again. So Alex, uh, I want to start with just a a little bit about your background. I actually realised I'm not sure about this. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, So I grew up in
5: Johannesburg, um, born and bred, but Both sides of my family are from Mauritius originally, a small island nation just off the coast of Madagascar there. Um, So Mauritian heritage, grew up um, born and bred here in Johannesburg,
0: in Ferndale and Randburg. And so being from Joburg, how did you find your way to Rhodes, because that's where I met you.
5: Yeah, so I finished up school um, when I was 18 and like a lot of young people I wasn't really sure what to do with myself so I thought I would throw myself into university and maybe try to become an environmental lawyer and I accidentally ended up taking a philosophy course (laughs) because there was a clash in my timetable and I couldn't do maths so I okay philosophy looks like fun, let me give that a try and that was the end of me. Uh, I ended up doing philosophy, loving it because it was so centered around questions of justice and fairness and morality Um, and so I ended up doing a um, bachelor's with you know, on philosophy and a masters, the focus on philosophy on questions of global justice and poverty, and then increasingly tying that to environmental and climate change issues.
0: So, just a quick question about Rhodes University: um, How you I, I sort of, one of the things that I've got the privilege of, of Planet, is seeing every campus uh, around the country, and what struck me is how little students know uh, about other campuses, so a little bit would be nice. Would you recommend Rhodes? What's your experience? And I suppose I need your comment on the name. Uh-huh.
5: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the university currently known as Rhodes, uh, I, I'll admit that I'm not a fan of the name, um, and that when we think about the, the needful transformation in this country, it is partly about not Celebrating those that have been part of the oppressive history. Um, so I'm hoping that one day they'll change their name. Um, but Rhodes is an interesting place to be. Um, it's now situated in Makunda rather than Grahamstown because <laughs> Colonel Graham was an awful uh, colonist, they did terrible things to the Kosovo people. Um, and it's an it's a interesting, like many South African uh, towns or cities, you know, Makunda is somewhat. Segregated place, and so you have Rose University, which is in the more affluent part of the uh, of the town, um, and then you have somewhat of a segregated area where, and it's not official segregation; it's the the legacy, of course. For sure, it, right? But it is a beautiful uh, area that is situated in the Eastern Cape, um, subtropical. Figure I believe is it's uh spine. Sounds about right to me. Um, and it's, it's I really love my time there. The the ecology is beautiful, um, and the the town is also very rich. You know, it's a largely a student town, but it's also such a culturally um, rich space because you have the National Arts Festival coming in every year, mm-hmm. biggest arts festival on the continent, um, and you really have this this really it, it's a it's a town where you know
0: there's so many people coming in and out, so you meet lots of
5: interesting people. Um,
0: uh, so, I met you at Rhodes University back in 2010. 2010
5: that right? so yeah, decade.
0: Uh, when you first uh, joined the Habitable Planet program, could you just give the listeners a little bit about what your experience was and how that's impacted you further down? The Habitable Planet
5: workshop, I think, came at a really uh, pivotal time looking back. Um, you know, I was just starting to get involved in like, climate change issues and I was involved in some student organizing around climate change. We were trying to push policy changes um, and action on climate change. And then the Habitable Planet workshop came in and I was like, oh, I really need to, to get involved with this and find out more, because being based in a philosophy department, you don't learn as much about climate science. So getting to understand the climate science was really vital in helping me better understand the problem mm-hmm. but also the other thing that was great was that I was connecting to people across the different disciplines, so sure. thinking about like how do different people approach this problem because it is such an interdisciplinary issue. The climate change touches on our politics, our sociology, our economics and of course our science and our philosophy and questions of morality and so that was a really wonderful experience and through doing that it really made me engage more and more in an interdisciplinary place on climate change, so I went on to be part of the interdisciplinary research units on climate change, I went on to do a graduate certificate in climate science, and so I think having the Planet Workshop really helped me to, to think more about how do we bring this complex question around climate change together across the disciplines.
0: Uh, and so then you quite uh, soon after your masters rights, you moved on to the US uh, where you've just completed your doctorate. Could you give us a little bit about both your experience in the U.S. and and what your doctorate was on? What, just break it down, I think, uh, uh, for a, a general audience.
5: Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, it well, was shortly after I finished my masters. I spent a bit of time working in Makanda on various environmental issues. Um, a little bit of time helping out with the Habitable Planet Workshop too, and then I went across to the States. And the States is a uh, it's a complex place. I mean I went across there for two reasons. One was because there are really great researchers who do this work the leading thinkers working on this but at the same time it is the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter um, and it is one of the biggest obstacles to actual global action on climate change. Right? Is it still
0: the biggest emitter? I thought China would overtake it soon, right? It's the biggest historical emitter. Sure. Okay. So, if you... No, know that's it. Britain.
5: No, no, it's, it's the United States. Britain got a uh, head start. Uh, yeah, yeah, the United States caught up. And, and they uh-huh. exceeded it. I think something like 23% of all emissions were emitted by okay. the United States.
0: And South Africa? In South historically? Africa,
5: historically, I think we're... I know that we're the 13 biggest current emitter, I'm not sure how big we are historically. Uh-huh. Okay. Um. In terms of current emitters, yes, China is the biggest current emitter, but you also need to think about that in terms of population size. If you look at population sure, size, sure. The United States is still leagues ahead of China. Sure.
0: Um, I'm sorry, I've distracted you from your story. That's okay,
5: that's okay. Um, important uh, clarifications. Because, and so the United States has played this really problematic role historically and that's. What first got me interested in going there was I was part of the United Nations uh, climate change negotiations as a young sort of political analyst slash activist in that space. I just saw the United States really blocking progress there. Um, it hasn't got
0: much better since you went. <laughs>
5: yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I naively went there thinking I could uh, push for action. And we, we were successful on a number of fronts. So we, you know, there were some good campaigns. But at the national level, the United States um, there are words that I could use to describe it, which aren't good for podcasts. But it's <laughs> really a mess right now.
0: I'm a bit aware of time, yeah. but I do really want to have two questions that cool. flow uh, into that before hearing about your thesis. Uh, uh, the one is that you and you talk and, and there as well. You paint a a very a, a very. Um, and uh, what's the word, a very diametric picture between two completely different groups. It's the evil oil industry who are are pushing the destruction of the world uh, versus the good on the other side. And and to some extent, you know, politics has become more and more polarized. But it's George Philander, the founder of Access, often relates this back to the Cold War, where you had uh, the communism and the US and became increasingly polarized. And Sting very famously asked if the Russians love their children too. But I would put that for oil companies and climate change deniers. Surely you must see that they love their children too. They can't surely be doing what you say that they're doing. It can't be that simple, a good and evil.
5: Uh, Yeah, I think it's not a simple good and evil. I think it's certainly a complex question. Um, I think part of it speaks to a question of Privilege. Um, so, this interesting cognitive st- so this goes to the, the psychology side of things. There are interesting studies looking at who is most likely to deny climate change, mm-hmm. and it maps on very much to privilege and to, to race, which often tracks privilege. So, typically, white conservative men who are well off are those that are least likely to believe in climate change, and that's because apparently they benefit so much from the system. And they are the least vulnerable to negative impacts on it, so they have a vested interest in continuing the system, but they don't want to see transformative change to the system from which they benefit. Right, so that's yeah. one one element is that there are these incredible cognitive biases where you, sure. as a privileged person, would be vested in the system, and the helm of most big oil and gas country uh, companies, mostly white men, rich, powerful men. Who benefit wildly from it, right? And so I think there's a vested cognitive uh, interest
0: in denying that problem. But, but I, I, think there's there's an important differentiation there that it's not. It's it's, it's they are unconsciously aware of the fact that they are denied that they are. They, but my point is, they believe their own lies. Yeah. That's that's what it comes down to. They don't sit there thinking, "I'm really going to make a lot of money out of messing up my grandchildren's world." They actually really do believe that uh, they're in the right.
5: I think yes and no. This is really interesting. So there's this ExxonU campaign, and it's also broader fossil fuel companies than you. Where fossil fuel companies, they had scientists employed telling us about climate change, telling us it was real. And they purposefully spread misinformation. They they went and spread misinformation about an issue they knew was going to be worse than they were telling the public. So I think there actually is a sense of deceit in there. And, I I mean, I don't know how to explain how someone makes that decision, but they did make that decision. And I think it's also sometimes easy to just paint the fossil companies as evil because they have done some evil stuff, to be fair. But there's also a complicity in which... Do, how are people contributing to upholding the fossil fuel industry and ensuring that it keeps on going right? both in terms of our politicians who are often in bed with it but also in terms of individual consumers um, who do contribute but at the same time we must also think about the structural changes that policies can allow us to move away from fossil fuels so I to put all the blame on individuals because there are a lot of structural changes that we can make which Politicians working with the fossil industry have been stopping us from doing it, but at the same time, we can't ignore um, whether we are contributing to this problem, especially the rich who
0: contribute more than others, right? But in South Africa right now, I mean, it's really tough to get anywhere without driving a car. Did you come by car? I did come by car this time, um, and look, I'm not
5: saying, but I do take the bus to work every day, though, so when, when I can, I try and utilize um, um, public transports. And in Seattle I was riding my bicycle everywhere, but no, you're right, There, there isn't available alternatives. I mean, taxi systems are great and I think we should be doing more to, to encourage um, safe and, and good access to taxis and electrifying the taxi fleets here as well, minibus taxis mm-hmm. we'll sure. after Right. Um The amount of carbon that's actually saved because we have the minibus taxis versus yeah, people yeah. driving individual cars like the average white and i reckon, I think is huge. Sure. Um, but yeah, you're right, there, there are tricky questions in terms of, there are some spaces where... <laughs> so you know that this podcast is recorded in South Africa when you have the podcast <laughs> in the
0: background. Okay, I'm aware of time, yeah. but both of us need to go. So, perhaps just in a few sentences, your thesis. Yeah,
5: sure thing. So, basically when the, you look at the IPCC reports, uh, when you look at the, the science, it's telling us that if we want to avert catastrophic climate change, uh, or really, really dangerous, bad climate change, right, we've got to try and keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius um, if we can, right, or um, well below two. 1.5 is a really important number, especially for least developed countries and those that are more vulnerable. So my big question that I, my thesis focuses on is: in order to get there, we're going to have to wind down fossil fuel use um, in a major way. And so my thesis is about climate justice and thinking about how do we ensure that that transition is equitable and that it is just, and what targets should we be aiming for. So I probably discuss like what the target should be and talking about the importance of 1.5. And how do we? Who has political and moral responsibility to make that change too? So it's grounded in questions
0: of morality or politics and of justice. And uh, and what's brought you back to South Africa? What are you doing now here in Joburg?
5: Um, so the plan after the PhD was always to come back to South Africa, um, and now that I'm back in South Africa, I've. Taken a turn away from strict academia, I still do some research and so on. But I am working with 350 Africa, and I work as a climate justice campaigner.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for making the time, Alex.
2: Thank you, Dr. Car, for that interview. Up next is our one-minute science, and uh, we today we'll be speaking of we'll looking at how our oceans are important for the habitability of our planet, and Wade will be taking us through that, and he will introduce himself and let us know where he's from.
3: Hey everybody my name is Wade I am a PhD student at the University of Cape Town in the Department of Oceanography and this is why I think the oceans are important. So number one it is a valuable food source for a lot of creatures including human beings. Number two it regulates the temperature of the earth, whether it be through albedo or thermohaline circulation, which is the real slow movement of um, varying temperatures of water. Um, the ocean and the atmosphere also happen, um, work interch- happen to work interchangeably, so one can't perform its function fully without the other. Um, The ocean is a big carbon sink and draws down a lot of carbon dioxide, which is a really important factor considering climate change. It is also a source of oxygen. The phytoplankton in the ocean provides a quarter of the Earth's oxygen supply. Not only that, but it's also a recycler of nutrients. So considering all this, I think without the ocean, we would not exist as a planet.
0: Okay, that was great. What a fascinating look into how the oceans make the planet habitable and once again completed in uh, under a minute, which is fantastic. That brings us around to probably my favourite part of the podcast. It's time for this week's Science Theatre.
6: Science Theatre. In this week's Science Theatre, we join the world's first ever time traveler as she goes on an epic journey to discover the real nature of light. All of these events actually happened exactly like
2: this and we know this is true because we made them up all by ourselves. Having invented the first time machine at breakfast this morning. I've made the interesting decision that instead of using it to get rich or go and accidentally get romantically involved with my mom, I've decided to go on a trip to find out more about light. Obvious. Let's flutter a course for ancient
1: Greece. Oh my word, where am I? You're in ancient Greece on a starry night, my dear. Around 55 years before the birth of Christ. Ancient Greece?
2: Wow, amazing. Even before Christ was born. Hang on a minute. What did you say, ancient Greece? Surely for you, it's just Greece. Um, and how do you know it's before Christ when you don't know who Christ is yet? Look, it's just lazy script writing, okay? Why are you
6: even speaking English to this when it's not been invented yet? You do know we have zero budget for this podcast, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll let it go. Okay, so here we are in ancient Greece. And who
1: are you? The name is Euclid. How may I help you?
2: I'm trying to learn what light is, and scientists in my time are so difficult to understand. I thought you might be able to explain it more simply.
1: Oh, wow. This is exactly what I was just thinking about. Our best scientists have made some observations. They tell us that light, it comes from the eyes. They know this because if you cut out somebody's eyes, observations of light just stop for them.
2: Scientists here cut people's eyes out?
1: Yes, of course.
2: I think our science is a little different now.
1: Yuck. But how else would they work out what they do? You people must be so backwards. Do you even know geometry, I wonder? That's my speciality. And also, the other things we know about light. It moves in straight lines. That is why you can't see around a corner. The beams from your eyes only go straight.
2: I guess that makes sense, but...
1: But I've come up with a problem. Like all good scientists, I am doing experiments right now on this starry, starry night.
2: I hope this won't involve cutting any body parts
1: out. Not immediately. I propose you look at the stars. Okay. Now close your eyes. Honestly, do
2: not cut anything off my body while I am closing my eyes. Okay, closed.
1: Okay, now open them. What do you see? Um,
2: still stars.
1: Exactly. Exactly. The stars are there immediately when you open your eyes, my child. But if the beam comes from your eyes, how did it get all that way instantly? Perhaps it moves instantly fast, but surely that's not possible. What if the eyes were different distances from the stars when they opened? Here's an experiment. That's by test. The speed of the light beam. We just need to cut out one eye, but leave the nerve intact, and then move it closer to the stars. There's <laughs> my knife. Girl! Girl! Come here! I've got a job for you! I need to cut out! Girl! Girl! What
2: a strange man. Glad I laughed when I did. Let's get out of this place. Setting a dial for the year 1801. Freezing cold and raining here, so I clearly must be in England.
0: Where did you come from?
2: The future. Well, actually the past. To be honest, I'm not quite sure anymore. Who are you?
0: I'm Thomas Young. The history books will refer to me as the last man who knew everything.
2: How can you know?
6: Listen, Titi, I won't warn you again about pointing out timeline paradoxes arising from lazy script writing. We don't have the budget of Terminator, and to be honest, our timeline has fewer holes in it. Seriously, why do they keep sending terminators to kill fully grown adults and teenagers who can clearly defend themselves when they could have just sent them to be killed when they were helpless little babies? I mean, they have a time machine, so
2: let's just run with it, okay? Okay, okay. Oh, that's bright. Why are you shining that light, Mr. Young?
0: I'm preparing for an experiment into the very nature of light.
2: Oh, yes. I just talked to a man who told me that light is a magic beam that travels in straight lines and comes from your eyes.
0: Oh, what nonsense. If it came from your eyes, then why can't you see in the dark just as well as the light, my child?
2: Hmm. You make a good point.
0: I did say I knew everything, didn't I? You are right about one thing, though. It does appear to travel in straight lines. Today, In modern science, we think of light as a stream of tiny particles moving almost infinitely fast from a source like the Sun, bouncing off objects, then being received by your eyes, which detect them. Today, I am going to use modern science to perform an experiment to try and falsify this long-standing theory.
2: I'm starting to get the idea that this is how science works. Observing something about light helps us build a useful theory about what it is. New observations help us replace the old useful theory with a new, more useful one. What will we observe today, Mr Yang?
0: Well, we know that the universe around us can be divided into energy and matter. Matter uh, forms and moves in particles, basically the stuff that you can see all around you. But energy moves in waves. You don't often really see energy, but you can hear energy in the form of sound waves, just like I'm speaking to you now, child. Are you
1: following? Hmm,
2: so the energy from your vocal cords moves to my ear via a sound wave.
0: Exactly. But think about this. If the sound we hear is simply energy transmitted by waves, what if the light we see is also just energy transmitted by waves? I mean, have you ever heard of a particle that moves almost instantly fast? Waves do, though. But how can I prove it?
2: I feel you are going to tell me.
0: Well, the thing that we know that separates waves and particles is a thing called diffraction. When particles meet each other, uh, they bump into each other and sort of scatter off. Waves, on the other hand, can either magnify or cancel each other when they meet. It depends on the phase that they're in. Uh, This means that when two waves meet, you get some areas with lots of energy, or you might think of it as big waves, and some areas with no energy at all, or no waves. It's called a diffraction pattern, and I, the greatest man, have developed an experiment to see if waves scatter, and are therefore particles, or, as I suspect, act like a wave and give a diffraction pattern. Are you ready to see? And
6: I have to stop you right there. What?
2: It was just about to get interesting.
6: Well, then you had better tune in next week to find out more. Ciao!
2: What an exciting science theatre. So now, next we have Any Questions.
0: Brilliant. And in this week's Any Questions, we had quite a lot of questions about astronomy because obviously that was the topic of the week and so I thought that we'd get back our our, uh, excellent astronomer Jerome to answer the first bunch of questions on that topic.
4: Any question? question? Hello, hi. My name is Jerome Bimutange. Your friendly astronomer here to answer the astronomy questions. And the first question is from Omomokoivo, which is, how is the Doppler effect used in astronomy? Right. Now the Doppler effect is defined as the change in frequency of a wave, including light relative to the motion of the observer and the source. Now, as the observer approaches the source, there will be a decrease in the wavelength. And as the observer moves away from the source, there will be an increase in the wavelength. Now, astronomers such as myself, we look up into the sky and we view objects in the sky, and they appear to be red. This means there was an increase in the wavelength of light so we conclude, the object is moving away from us, and the universe is expanding, and this phenomena is known as the red shift. Another question is from mameloma Mafete, and her question is, why is Pluto no longer considered a planet? Pluto is no longer considered a planet because it didn't meet one of the three mm-hmm. criteria. The International Astronomical Union uses to define a full size planet, hence, it was demoted to a dwarf planet. Now, leading us to another question by Lerato Njalinjali, and the question is What is the difference between a planet and a dwarf planet? Since I just said Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet, now, what is the difference between a planet and a dwarf planet? Now, the main reason or the main difference between a planet is a dwarf and a dwarf planet is not meeting its neighboring region of other planets meaning it is gravitationally dominant and it's not gravitationally influenced by other objects in space and most of the question also were asked about the newly discovered planet that has been all over media news and social media about a planet that is supposedly habitable and that planet in question is of course K2-18b. K2-18b is two times the size of Earth and it's about 110 light years away from us. That's super far. Uh, Researchers have detected water vapor on its atmosphere. Now remember, for a planet to be considered as habitable, liquid water has to exist on its surface, and liquid water has not been detected on K2 18, this surface, yet. Thank
0: you. All right, brilliant. Thank you for those, Jerome. I just want to point out that we got lots of questions, and there's loads of fantastically interesting questions that you guys sent in but we're not going to have time to answer them all and I also want to point out that we're trying to do them in parallel with the Habitable Planet online course Uh, and so any questions that either are going to be answered in later talks or involve things not in our model yet such as humans um, etc we're going to leave those and either answer them at a later date or let the course naturally answer them.
2: So we also have more general questions here with us in the studio and Dr. Carl will try to answer some of the questions. So Stabi Lembuisa asks, why is the mesosphere temperature negative 85 degrees but the thermosphere temperature 100, 1500 degrees or is it because it's closer to the sun?
0: Ok that's a great question, thank you for that. Uh, a lot is made in the course about the um, the troposphere and the stratosphere and that's really because those are the two layers that actually affect our everyday lives, most so uh, the troposphere we will come onto the stratosphere uh, a little more in a bit. Not so much is made of what happens above that, and that's mainly because we don't really experience it and it doesn't really impact us. But the reason why the temperatures start increasing again is not because we're closer to the Sun. Actually, the change in distance from the Sun from thermosphere right to the top of the atmosphere is probably about 0.001%. It's a tiny difference on the scale of the Earth to the Sun and doesn't make temperatures increase. The reason that the stated temperature increases is One, because of chemical reactions, photochemical reactions happening. That's where the sun's light is so intense at those high altitudes, that it actually breaks open molecules um, within the upper atmosphere. And those reactions are exothermic, they give out heat. So that starts to warm. The, uh, the air up there but the second thing is that the air is so thin up there that it only takes a little bit of heat to record a high temperature but that's kind of it's not a real recording you wouldn't feel hot up there because there isn't enough air molecules up there to make you feel hot All right, so I hope that's answered that question
2: yes Um, The next question is from Sambulonjali who asks, my question is how is the Andani model said to be wrong because from the very start in the early grades we are introduced to it?
0: That's a really good question and it gets at the heart of one of the main things that we try and get across in the workshop and and that's this idea and it actually it's come up in this week so if you go and watch Noluto's talk on modeling we get this idea that Uh, all models are wrong but some are useful and that science actually is a process by which we get towards ever better and better models but we never actually get ones that are, are completely perfect and actually as Naluta will go into a perfect model would be no use at all. She gives an example of, for example, a physical model of the human anatomy that doctors use. If you had a perfect physical model of the human anatomy you'd have a human uh, and that would be useless because you couldn't take the lungs out to see how they work because you'd kill the person and you'd get in trouble. The model doesn't want to be exactly right. And what happens in science in general between we have this interplay between facts and theories and so we just saw this in, or heard this moreover, in, in science theatre that Uh, We make observations as scientists about the world around us and we build a theory that explains those observations. We then find new observations and we need a new theory to explain all of the old ones and the new ones. So that means that our new theory becomes better because it doesn't just explain one set of observations, it explains two sets and that goes on and on and on to infinity. So Andani's model was deliberately leaving out lots of different things that we actually know about the Earth so we can start to explore how we go through that process of making an observation, building a model, then adding a new observation and building a model. So we started with uh, just a bare rock We know that Earth isn't really just a bare rock of Earth. We know that there are oceans. We know that there's atmospheres, humans, and animals. But we've taken them away to try and simplify the problem. And then each time when we add one thing in, we can look at the effect of adding that one new observation and how we have to change our model.
2: Interesting. Um, The next question is from Salfina Sateke. And she asks, that can you explain to me more about the effective temperature, I don't really understand it.
0: Okay so that links on from that question. In our first talk, Not Too Hot, we actually have our simplest model of the earth. And that's an Earth that is just this bare ball of rock, the right colour and the right distance from the Sun. And by doing that, we can do a calculation based on how the conservation of energy, knowing that the amount of energy the Earth gets and the Earth loses must be the same. And We can do that and we use a little bit of physics to go and find out what the temperature of the Earth should be if it was just this bare ball of rock. And that is the effective temperature. That's the scientific name for what the temperature of the planet should be without the atmosphere, oceans, humans, etc.
2: Nice. Um, Our next question is from Shemaine Kwaramba, And the question is, what are the other observations about the origin of the universe besides the Big Bang Theory?
0: Okay, and I suppose this also needs to... to, uh, um, It's a nice question, and it needs to... Uh, think about the things that we've just said. The Big Bang is a theory, not an observation, right? So a Big Bang is a theory that explains various observations about the universe. And the one is that the universe is ever expanding, and we know that the laws of nature don't change. So therefore, if the universe is ever expanding, it must have come from one point. And that's the big point of my first talk. Um, There is a lot more evidence that's gone into it, and one that's worth Uh, a little, a a lot more evidence that actually has proven the Big Bang to be the one theory that we have. And one of them that's very important is that of what's called cosmic microwave uh, background radiation. And this principally is the idea that if you have a fire, uh, a big fire one night, so you have a braai, it's coming up to braai day in South Africa. Uh, then the next morning you often still have the coals glowing a little bit, you have this afterglow. And that's a predictable phenomenon. How hot the fire is depends on what sort of um, colour the fire will glow the next morning. And the same is true for the Big Bang. So when scientists first realised, or first um, proposed the idea that the universe started in one place, they came up with the temperature would be very hot because everything is compressed, and then they realised that if you... Um, go forward to now, that's kind of like the morning after in our bright analogy, there must be an afterglow and they could calculate quite precisely what that afterglow temperature should be and they calculated it and they found that that is exactly the temperature, the uh, radiation that we see all around in the universe. Not only that, they calculated (coughs) how it should be slightly different in one place of the universe and in another and that once again when they went to measure it after making that prediction they found that exactly what is predicted by the big bang is what happens in observations.
2: Just to wait in here Carl, I think the planeteer wants to find out what are the theories besides the big bang theory.
0: Aha, uh-huh. yes. and that's a very simple answer then, at the minute there's none. Uh, the only theory we have out there that explains all of the evidence right now is the Big Bang Theory and that's that's quite a measure of just how well established uh, and rigorous the Big Bang Theory is which is amazing I mean coming back to the paleo um, discussion that you had earlier to start to be so sure about events that happened 13 billion years ago is is absolutely mind-boggling okay
2: so our next question it's from Po Malobisi, and the question is Do hab- habitable planets require a magnetic field together with albedo, the Earth size, distance from the Sun, greenhouse effect, and other factors? Should it also be considered since it? Plays an important
0: role in Earth's Okay, uh, maybe the question That's is not unworthy, the best written, right? but it, it is an important <laughs> question, and and, it, and this brings us on to, to one observation to make that you know as we as we build on our model of a habitable planet, we investigate all sorts of different factors that are critical in making sure the planet's habitable. Uh, however, we don't, we can't possibly do them all. We've already got you for ten weeks, mm. right, and we could probably take it into ten months. Uh, should we wish to and it would appear that a magnetic field is a really important part of making a planet habitable because of this effect that it has as as the question I think points out on um, uh, solar radiation and um, uh, cosmic rays Uh, but it's something that we could have brought into the course but but actually isn't Earth is quite unique in that respect as well.
2: The second part of the question was what is the importance of the ozone layer?
0: Uh and I think somebody else also asked that, right? It's
2: the
0: Oh same it's still about past... okay, yeah. great. Uh and so that sort of also speaks to the same Uh, uh, to the same uh, principle that the ozone layer is super important. It's one thing that we don't really mention much in the course. And principally, life on land would not be possible without the ozone layer because it filters out some of the sun's higher energy radiation that would actually cause us to burn very quickly and our DNA to denature very quickly. So the presence of the ozone layer, we can say, allowed life on land to exist.
2: That wraps up our questions for today. Hope all your questions were answered. Thank you Carl.
0: Okay, wonderful.' Um, so fantastic to get such a, a lot of interesting questions uh, from you guys and that's about all that we have for you today.
2: Hope you guys enjoyed our second podcast and uh, good luck for the online course. See you guys next week.
4: Bye! Ladies and gentlemen Please join us again next time on the next podcast brought you yeah.
0: Bye! Here it is. The Habitual Planet podcast was produced by Pekiso and Tinkul The studio team in Cape Town were Carl Palmer, Precious Mastolella and Asmita Singh All voices in science theatre were done very badly And any resemblance to actual people is both highly unlikely and purely coincidental